Our gospel lesson for today, the 12th Sunday after Pentecost, comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, people of God, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. If you're familiar with the layout of our church property, you know that the front doors, which kind of lead out, they're kind of right on the opposite wall, this direction from the camera, from where I'm standing now, It leads out to the sidewalk, which kind of snakes its way out uh, to the parking lot. And then, of course, across the parking lot is the house where I live. And since I live there and I tend to cross the parking lot quite a bit, going back and forth for work, coming into the office or coming over to the church for various things, sometimes I don't want to follow the path of the sidewalk. And because of that, I tend to cut across the lawn, which lies outside here as well. Now, if you know, the lawn cuts across there, there's some grass, and then right before you get to the sidewalk and then the subsequent uh, parking lot that's right beyond it, there's this little step. There's a, a flower garden there, and it's ringed around with these decorative paver stones. And something that I've, I've noticed, and I've noticed it off and on over the last couple of years, and definitely noticed it actually first thing this morning as I walked across the parking lot and took that shortcut, is that one of those paver stones is beginning to break down. It's beginning to, the front edge of it is beginning to crumble, almost beginning to erode away. Now, it's not alone. Some of the other pavers that are along the, their line along it, they're starting to crack and such too. But this one in particular is really showing the wear. Now, I thought some about what could be causing that. Why is this one paver stone really the one that's starting to break down? On one hand, it's right up against the sidewalk. And it, again, if you're familiar with our property, you know, occasionally we get some frost heave in the winter that moves that sidewalk around. And so that pressure of butting up against this, this stone might be causing part of it. It could be rain coming down off the roof and starting to land on it and wear away. It could even be the presence of wind. And it's certainly possible that maybe the action of me coming across the lawn and stepping down from above and landing on that one paver stone, or on the flip side, if I'm going the opposite direction, putting my foot down and shoving myself up to the uh, to the higher the higher level maybe that pressure of me landing on that is causing a little bit of that that crumbling going on as well maybe maybe not I don't know if I want to claim it but it could be that I'm part of the external forces that are causing that now this idea of external forces working to break something down to wear it down to wear it away there's a name for that you're probably familiar with it we tend to learn about it fairly early on in our young science classes it's erosion and it happens all the time in nature the the action of ongoing things wearing or breaking them down we see it with rocks we see it with the way that rivers gradually cut into the landscape 
We can compare even the, the, the high Rocky Mountains, which we know are much younger than the Appalachian Mountains out to the east and the way that, that weathering has, has worn them down over the course of, of, of centuries, even eons. But it's this action of external forces that gradually break something down. Now, I want you to sort of tuck that into the back of your minds because we're going to connect that into our scripture, but we need to unpack this a little bit. Here we are. We're a little over halfway through the gospel now. Jesus' ministry has been going on for quite a while. He's been traveling around. He's been active in many different places. He's been performing miracles. He's been healing. He's been proclaiming the, 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 the gospel. He's been teaching. He's been preaching. We know he's attracted great crowds. He's also been attracting opposition. There's some that really like what he has to say. There's some that aren't quite so sold on what he has to say. And throughout all this, of course, the disciples have been with him. And for whatever reason, we don't know exactly what prompts this, but for whatever reason, he decides it's a good time to take stock and think, what's the court of public opinion say? And so he asks the disciples, who do the people say that I am? Now they think about it for a minute and they give the responses that they've heard. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist or some say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Honestly, none of these are out of line and it's perhaps understandable. If we think about John, for instance, John and Jesus, as we've talked about in the past, they had very similar messages. Even if their ministries were different and their tactics were different, the message was still the same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's verbatim the same sort of thing. And not only that, but we also know that John and Jesus were related. So maybe it stands to reason that some people might hear about it and think, well, oh yeah, they're probably the same guy. Perhaps that's understandable. What about the prophets though? We name a couple of them and then they talk about the other prophets as well. Well, think about what the prophets did in the history of, of Palestine, of the Holy Land. They were divinely inspired. They received a message from God to proclaim to the people. It, and it would always be about the action of God or sometimes even the absence of God's action because of the way that, that, that reality is shaping up, because of what the people are doing and the way that God is going to respond to it. Now, sometimes it's good news, sometimes it's not good news, but that's what it is. It's this divinely inspired message about the action of God in the world. So as Jesus is talking about the ways that the kingdom of heaven has come near and the way that's coming to fruition, maybe it makes sense. Yeah, he kind of sounds like a prophet, doesn't he? So these things make sense. But Jesus wants to take it one step farther. And he says, okay, well, that's what the people who have heard about me, that's what they say. But then he looks at the disciples and he said, you've been with me this whole time. You have been, been present for all of these different events. You've heard the teaching. You've seen the miracles. You've, you've seen the interactions with people. You've heard and seen all these things. We've had the personal interaction between us. So who do you say that I am? Now with this question, Peter speaks up. And this isn't out of the realm of, of, of being common. Peter's often the one who speaks up. We oftentimes think of him as being sort of the spokesman for the disciples. I kind of love Peter because he's really good at putting his foot in his mouth. But this time, Peter's on point. And he responds, you are the Messiah, or Christ, depending on which translation we're looking at. You are the Messiah, God's anointed, God's chosen one. And then not only that, but he says, the son of the living God. Now, I really zeroed in on this statement of Peter because while this interaction, this back and forth, is present in some of the other Gospels, this is the only time when Peter says that, that son of the living God. So what is he really saying there? He is acknowledging 
that Jesus is the embodiment, the human embodiment of that which is divine, of the one who is the living God. Now that title, living God, that's something from the Old Testament or the, the Hebrew scriptures. It's what they're often referred to, especially when we consider God as the creator. If we look back at Genesis, the one who made all of this and then literally breathed life, the very essence of life into animals and humanity, that's this living force that we share, that we have been given, that all of life has been given. It's the very living essence of God. And so that's where this title, living God, comes from. And Peter says, you are the one who is the physical embodiment. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus apparently loves this answer. And, and we have this interaction. Now, this interaction, this ongoing back and forth between Jesus and Peter, this is also unique to Matthew's gospel. And whenever we have that unique aspect, something that's not featured in the other gospels, it's always important to pay attention to. And so I really sort of dug into that. And especially the reaction that Jesus has. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It is of my father in heaven. What Jesus is telling us here is he's reminding us of the truth that understanding the gospel, faith in the gospel, belief in the gospel, and the ability to proclaim this very statement that Jesus, or that Simon has just made, that Peter has just made, that you are the Messiah, and not just the earthly anointed king, but the one who is bringing the kingdom of heaven to fruition, that can only be done through divinely inspired action. It is not something that is self-generated. It is not of human origin. This understanding, this faith in the gospel, the ability to proclaim it is not of us. That's an important thing for us to remember because the same spirit which seemingly empowered Peter or Simon to make this proclamation is the same spirit which rested upon Jesus in his baptism it is the same spirit which Jesus will breathe into the disciples and the same spirit that will blow among the entire church at Pentecost and empower them to be the body of Christ post-resurrection. The same Holy Spirit which empowers this statement, this proclamation, is the one that empowers all of the church, all of the body of Christ to be the body of Christ. Now we profess a faith, an understanding that the gift of the Holy Spirit comes upon each of us, that we are given that same gift, that same Holy Spirit, and are empowered by that same Holy Spirit through the action of baptism, the sacrament of holy baptism. And that's important for us today because today, weather permitting, out on the church lawn, we're going to celebrate in baptism. A, a little girl, a little baby who was born last fall, she will be baptized. She will receive the same gift of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus, and the same claim of God as beloved child will be placed upon her and she will enter into the work of the church. And we even say that in our baptismal, uh, our baptismal liturgy. We, we welcome you as a fellow worker in the kingdom of God. Now, all of this is important. All of this is important, especially as we consider the next thing that Jesus says. He says, I call you Peter. And, and Peter, of course, means rock. It's literally the literal translation of the original language means rock. You are rock, and on rock, I will build my church. Now, there's a lot of different understandings about or interpretations about that particular passage of what is Jesus really saying there. But I think the important thing to remember is not so much that Jesus is talking about Peter himself. I think Jesus is talking about the rock of this spirit-empowered proclamation. 
this spirit-empowered faith that can only come of divine origin. That same faith which unites us, that's the basis for the church. Not our action, not what we bring to the table physically, but more so the action that's empowered the abilities that are empowered by the Holy Spirit, which unites us and binds us and will bring this little baby into our midst on this day as well. That's, I think, what Jesus is talking about. And he goes on from there. And I need to bring all of this up because I think it's important. The next thing that Jesus says, he says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Sometimes we hear this, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But Hades is the better thing. Now, what's Hades? Well, folks, Hades is the place where dead people are. Wherever it is, or however it is, or whatever it is, or wherever it is, that our, our soul, or our sense, or our essence, or our life force, whatever we want to call it, when we die, where does that go? Well, that's Hades. It's the place where dead people are. Oftentimes, when we hear this passage, I think it's our tendency to think of this as the gates of Hades or hell or whatever. That's the external force which is acting to try and bring the church down. That it, It's acting to try and make the church crumble. It's one of those forces which, yes, I believe there are forces out there that are working in opposition of the church. But that's the way we th- tend to think of it. But think about a gate, the gates of Hades. What does a gate do? Literally, the only thing that a gate does is keep things in or out. It has to be opened. It has to be closed. The gate itself is completely passive, isn't it? That's important for us to remember because I believe what Jesus is saying here is not so much that the church has to stand up against the gates of hell, which are opposing it. I think it's the other way around. The church, the empowered body of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring forth the proclamation that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God expressed in Christ Jesus, not even death, That's what has to stand up against our message. Our message, our proclamation, the the divinely inspired gospel, which we embody through our embodiment of the Holy Spirit as the body of Christ, we bring this into the world. And every time we proclaim that message that nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even death, those gates are being attacked. And the promise is that those gates that hold death in, that hold us in death, those gates will not prevail. They will fall because the gospel is bigger, is better, is stronger, whatever word we want to use. It is bigger and better than the gates of hell. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise that we have received. That's the promise that sets us free from the powers of sin and death that we don't have to fear them. Yes, they are still real, and I'm not saying they're not, but we don't have to fear them because the promise is that they don't get the last word in our story. God does. And that promise is what we carry into the world, a world so desperate for it. That's what Jesus is talking about when he tells Peter, I'm going to build the church on this rock, and nothing will stand before it. May we hold on to that promise because it's for us, but it's also for us to carry out into the world so that we can continue to free life after life after life after life, person after person after person, that we can free them in this wonderful hope that is found, the freedom that is found in the knowledge that the kingdom of heaven has come near to you and it is for you and you are a part of it. Why? Because God loves you and nothing will overcome that. Amen.